I want to be really clear about this because I've spoken about this before. I don't want to be known as a female CEO. I am a CEO. I am successful because I work really hard and surround myself with really smart people. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. My guest today is a forthright and successful businesswoman in the retail industry. This is the continuation of the new series on Heads Talk, the retail series, where we talk to executive leaders in this space about, among other things, how this sector is morphing with the advent of digitalization, the ramping up of the circular economy, augmented reality commerce, and now Web3. But before we get into that, here is a brief message. I have two passion, creation and communication, and one mission, women empowerment. I linked my passion with my mission and created a silent mentor for women, the Delance Watch. Made by Women for Women, the Delance Watch is a sign of recognition for women who want to make the world a better place for all. I am Giselle Ruffer, the creator of the Delance Watch, the Watch Lady. Let's talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle Schwitter. Meryl Robin Morse is the founder and CEO of her namesake business. She has spent 30 years in the retail industry as an executive and has been a leader in the footwear industry for over 20 of those years. This New York-based entrepreneur is a bit of a trailblazer who entered into the very male-dominated business in 2001 and became successful in her own right and on her own terms. Let's begin this conversation now. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Farrell to Heads Talk. Many thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Thank you. Okay, um, we've got a few questions to get through today. So I would like to start with you telling me and my listeners all about your business, um, Farrell Robin Footwear, how it started, what does it do? You know, the size, company base, location, branches, you know, the usual stuff. Sure. Um, Farrell Robin is a business that has a mission of empowering women. And we really just use footwear to do that. Um, we see a world where size, age, gender association, financial means, physical limitations don't exist. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm a firm believer that every woman in the world should put on a pair of shoes and feel like the prettiest girl in, at, at the prom and feel honored mm -hmm. and respected and that is what we do as an organization um, using footwear as our tool. Mm -hmm. So um, what would you say your USP, is it, um, you know, sort of shoes for women, what, what would you say the USP of your organization? So we, we design and produce footwear for retailers around the country yep. and brands, which is a very unusual business model because we um, understand the entire marketplace from entry level at 1999 through higher designer in the 300s with um, countries of production 
that are quite diverse based on the consumer that we are focused on. We are shockingly consumer centric. Yeah. Um, we have always believed that the ultimate customer, our customer is the consumer and it is our role to have a point of view, a vision and offer value as it relates to design, comfort mm -hmm. um, and anything that has to do with the footwear industry. Okay, um, let's talk about ESG. Everyone's talking about ESG. Let's talk about ESG and the sustainability drive across the globe. How is Farl Robbing Footwear adhering to this? And what is the impact on the business? Okay, so this is a real passion of mine. Yeah. Um, we have a sustainability department mm -hmm. and really our core values align with the UN's 2030 agenda for yeah. sustainable development. Mm -hmm. But it goes beyond that. Like we're an organization that is looking at sustainability and ESG in terms of people and process and the product uh, as well as the planet because uh, footwear is, as you know, is, or if you don't know, is one of um, the least sustainable products out there in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, and our um, desire to democratize the ability to buy sustainable as it relates to product, mm -hmm. Um, has taken us on a lot of different goals. So, so price and sustainability is generally at a conflict with each other. It simply costs more to produce more sustainable footwear. Mm. So we can send beaded algae to our factory base, melt it down and actually have carbon negative aspects of the materials that we're using. And we can use recycled uh, and or organically produced cottons and materials but we also want to democratize and work, you know, create this opportunity for anybody who feels empowered by supporting a sustainable world and make it accessible to them. And what we've learned is we can go back to the beginning. We can go back to AI, leaner systems, 3D, mm -hmm. um, less waste as it, as it relates to uh, sampling expenses and shipping expenses and re-looking at our countries of production to try to create more near shore production, again, to mitigate the, value, the, the, the carbon output that we're working on. So this is so much bigger than just we used recycled uppers or bottoms. And, and frankly, I think it is much more honest mm -hmm. and it is much more... Um, and it is, 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 we're more passionate about it because really our, our goal is to, to democratize what sustainability is. And it is not just in the product, mm -hmm. it is across the board. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, you just said you, you've got a sustainability department, but how much control do you have along the, the value chain, so to speak, to, to ensure everything is as sustainable as optimal as it possibly can? You know, we have our own office overseas. We have our own QC teams for that reason. Um, we are very involved in every uh, step of the process, who our partners are, where they're purchasing materials, who is working on the product. And part of that is um, required because we work with very, very large retailers that have very high standards of compliance. It's clearly a big issue in the United States. Um, so we have as much control as we can have today. With that being said, this is also, a, I, I think people um, 
have been talking about sustainability for a very long time, but we are still very early in the process. And uh, we haven't aligned on definitions as an industry, uh, frankly, as a country, I don't think. We haven't aligned on verbiage that is honest. It, it sort of reminds me of the FDA 30 years ago when you could write, you know, 100% natural Mm -hmm. and nothing's really natural. So we want to do this um, as thoughtfully, as carefully, and as honestly as we possibly can with as much transparency mm -hmm. as we can offer. Mm -hmm. And we know that this is a learning process. And yeah. my assumption as a CEO and business owner, if I've learned anything in my 30 plus year career, it is that you try you win, you try, you fail, you try, you learn um, until you get it as right as you could possibly get it. And that is our goal, just to be really transparent in our learnings mm -hmm. and our ability to apply sustainable strategies to our organization. Mm -hmm. Right, um, let's, let's talk about another sort of big topic here. Sustainability is one, but the current pandemic is, and I really briefly want to talk about COVID and its lasting impact. Um, I think we're nearing the other side of this virus, touch wood. Um, so I would like your thoughts on how it has um, changed things and behaviors and the impact on the retail sector. First, how has it molded your organization or your thinking and your business, um, Byron? You know, um, without minimizing the, the heart aspect of the devastation of a virus like this, mm. I truly believe that we are a much better organization coming out than we were going in. I think it really um, acted as a catalyst for all of these organizations that were thinking, you know, we should be working in 3D because it's a leaner system. Mm -hmm. But it was on, it was it's somewhere in the middle of the priority list. Mm -hmm. um, I think we should be use analytical data in a different way, um, but it really never floated to the top. And I think what um, COVID has done is it has taught us that we can be, um, it required the world to be flexible mm -hmm. in a way that they hadn't in the past. Um, and I could tell you, I think one of the things that I am most proud of um, within my organization and my company is we have never subscribed to this is the way it's done. Mm -hmm. We have always been outside the box thinking. And I think part of that is just being, um, you know, the, the little, the little man, actually, I should say the little woman, but you know, the part of that is being Farrell Robin Morse as the introduction says you do things your way and you get things mm -hmm. done your way so I think that's part of it um, yeah right. so we you know as an organization we as we have always subscribed to quality of life is as important mm -hmm. as quantity as it relates to the people that we work with mm -hmm. so we have you know a woman in our organization has a child mm -hmm. and the conversation be really almost immediately is let us know when you want your computer where you want it you want to start working from home that's great mm -hmm. you want to work in a different state that's great you want to work different hours whatever it is that works for you i'm a firm that. believer that 
that it, it is. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry, I, I sorry to interrupt you there. But I think it's interesting that you, when asked that question, you you pointed to the positives, the sort of the silver linings of the pandemic and how it um, affected the business for the better, which is interesting. But how would you say it's affected the retail industry as a whole? What has changed forever? Would you say? I I think that it has been a long time since brick and mortar and retail stores have had to. Um, be smarter. And the burden was on them to be responsible for their business. Historically speaking, department stores work with margin requirements. Um, there are all of these um, sort of safety fails within retail that have been in place that really, I think, diminished the quality of product, the, the thoughtfulness of the product. Um, for many, many years, you would walk into a retail store, and it's part of the reason that we left the wholesale industry. Mm -hmm. And I would work in a Nordstrom's on a Saturday and work in a Bloomingdale's on a, on a Monday. And the product was the same. And the shoes were the same from different designers. And there really was no reason to walk into a retail store anymore. And we started to focus on digital business and opportunities. And I think the burden of being successful for retailers has shifted. And I think they're very aware of the fact that they need to be accountable and smarter and think outside the box now in a way that they mm -hmm. never had before. There was a period of, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And that went on for a long time in the retail industry. But now there's just a sea shift. It's completely changing. Um, the, not just the pandemic, digitalization and all that. But we're going to go into greater detail about some of the stuff there. But, but I, I have to say, I think it was broken longer than people acknowledge. Right. I think, I think um, there was a lack of creativity and inspiration in, in creative business development and product offering for much longer than there should have been. And, um, and, and, and frankly, as somebody who produces designs for yeah. these retailers, yeah. it was really frustrating. With that being said, it is like the new wild west out mm -hmm. there. And, mm -hmm. and if you trust yourself and are creative and push boundaries and be bold, mm -hmm. there is nothing but opportunity in this. Like, I have never been as inspired Mm -hmm. about what we can offer, how we can creatively um, communicate product to both our retailers with 3D showrooms and, and, or, and you know, mm -hmm. AI and, and, you know, all of these, these tools that we have today that are so fun and so creative and lend itself to leaner, smarter, better business. But you said it was broken before the pandemic and other recent developments. If, if that was the case, why was nothing really done about it? I think, again, I'm gonna go back to safety, um, safety measures that large retailers in the United States have in play. There mm -hmm. is this margin requirement that, we're, that we have to live by. There's this theory of if we're buying enough, you become accountable for. Mm -hmm. business model that um, it almost reminds me of tenure for a bad teacher, that there is very, uh, there is mitigated risk to the retailers or was mitigated risk for the retailers on how well they did mm -hmm. because there was a tremendous burden on the brands and the partners that they work with. And um, I think we got 
lazy. Mm, I th- and I think I still work in an industry where the C-suite looks like, you know, 90% white men between the ages of 55 and 65. Mm. And that is just the industry and the world that we live in today when you think about what retailer, re- retail looks like. And I think there was a passive um, approach. So there's a number of things that's disrupting that now. So it's a very exciting time in the retail industry. And I can hear it in your voice. You sound really excited about what's happening. And I I am. You've been in the business for what, 30 years. So this must be, um, it must be a landmark time for you because I'm sure prior to that, has there been any time that feels like now? Uh, I could only equate it to the first five years of starting a business. Mm. okay all right I can equate it to like that learning those you know I had worked in the industry in every aspect starting you know prior to starting my own company but when I started my own companies I had to fail and learn Mm -hmm. and touch fire and go down wrong streets and as scary as that is, is as exciting as it is. It's an incredibly empowering moment to say, I know how this industry works and I'm going to do it differently. Mm. I know what you guys expect, but you're not, you don't have visibility to something that I think is a white space or a need in the world. And sometimes you eat the bear and sometimes the bear eats you. I'm I'm fortunate that um, I surround myself with really, loyal, smart, uh, and supportive people that I work with on the daily. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was scary and exciting and empowering and cool. And then I think every uh, company goes into this sort of uh, survival mode where you're making decisions um, that may or may not work for you because you're running a business. Mm -hmm. And then you get to a phase in your history where you really have the power again to stop, step back and say, what is the legacy I am going to leave as a company and be really disciplined about that. And then COVID hit and it was, it was literally like going back to the first years of being in business where it was all of this creative outside the box thinking, understanding consumer behavior and how it shifted in the course of 12 months and why it shifted. And and, and I've said this always as, as a mother of two kids, you know, we talk about educating our children and the reality is, you know, 80% of all jobs that are created um, within a decade haven't even been thought of when we're starting this process. Yeah. And there is this sort of recognition of, of teaching or, or of, of working, you know, yeah, years I, or two I, I out. That's exactly what you mean. I think there's a phrase where we are teaching our kids for the jobs of yesterday as opposed that's to correct. the jobs of tomorrow, which is a, a, a kind of a scary fact, isn't it? You, and, uh, and it's real. And the truth is, I think we have been running businesses in that same, for, same vein. That's correct. And I think this, this it made it undeniable mm. that that is not a sustainable business model. Okay. We're going to talk more about 
your business um, and the entrepreneurial world. Thank you for the introduction to that. So listeners, hold on. Um, Farrell, we'll talk some more about that. But first, I, I want to talk about this. I, you know, in my research on you, um, your business and the work you're doing, I, I always do that when I know I've got a guest coming on the show, I do a bit of my own research. There, there is a running theme. Um, I could see it. I was reading it. And I want to explore this in the next question. And you even call it a superpower, though many um, would disagree with this, especially in the business world. Um, but please talk to my listeners about some of your projects and initiatives that would probably be classed as social entrepreneurs. Sure. I, I, think, I think this starts with the understanding of the importance of diversity in the business world. Mm-hmm. Um, that I am female. I am... Um, I have my own sets of values and what is important to me. And it never really was in line with what historical businesses felt was important. You know, you know, how much time a human spends in an office is, I could care less mm-hmm. as long as they're getting their job done. And, and this notion of, of, of being kind, and that's, that's personal. That is my personal legacy that gets to combine or be displayed through my business legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, a a um, pivotal moment for us as an organization was, was a couple of years ago when we woke up one day and said, we're good. Like we're actually, we've had double digit growth for the last decade. Mm-hmm. We're doing very well. Um, we're having fun. Take a deep breath. And, and I won't forget it, our CFO who, who is also the president of our company said to me like, what do you want to do now? Like now, if you get to choose, who do you want to be today? And I said, I want to offer childcare mm-hmm. to the factory line production employees. Because as a, as a working mother, uh, I nurse both of my kids at trade shows um, in back rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to get on airplanes and leave my children. And it was soul crushing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did it, you know, that it was my job. I was in survival mode. I did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that feeling. And when you go into a country like Asia, it is, um, culturally the norm mm. for parents to leave their children. And, um, it's a transitory workforce and they get to see their kids, maybe two, three max, four weeks annually. Um, and it is very normal for grandparents and or boarding schools to be um, caring for these kids for months and months. And, and it, it, every time I step in a factory, and I love being in factories, it's like my sweet spot, um, mm-hmm. it, it always um, triggered something in me. So our first really large philanthropic endeavor, other than female empowerment, was how do we... In, you know, sort of increase the quality of life, improve the quality of life for these human beings who contribute to our success, who are responsible for our sex, uh, success, that we are indebted to, whether they perceive it as a job or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and we created the first childcare facility for factory workers in Asia. We had one in the North, one in the South. We got uh, our partners involved. Um, and when I got to see, or when I got to sit down and have conversations with factory line people, the gratitude and the lack of 
you know, they just didn't believe that Western business owners cared about them. And the response was, we want to do our job better for you. And yeah. this, this question that I've struggled with, how do you make 100,000 pairs of any given item personal to everybody that touches it the way it is to me? Mm-hmm. It took being generous to do that. And I, I remember being in a CEO conference, a business, um, actually it was a trade conference. And the topic of discussion was policing quality. And, you know, the importance of policing quality to ensure mm-hmm. that it looks the way you do. And, and I remember standing up and it was one of the very first times I spoke publicly as a woman, as a CEO, that I felt empowered to do that. And that just comes with a whole female set of luggage that we could talk about in another time. But, um, and I said, why are we using the word policing in 2000 and, you know, 15? Mm-hmm. And why are we not thinking of kinder and more generous ways to work with our partners? And I literally watched the room roll their eyes. Mm-hmm. It was so sort of naive to them And fast forward six years later, and these same men are touting transparency and generosity and valuing the humans in their business. And it's fascinating to see what what doing things with integrity and for the right reasons Mm -hmm. does. Mm -hmm. Um, We want to be a company about empowerment. And that doesn't just mean the customers that buy our shoes. It means everybody that we touch in the course of really really interesting and I don't know if there is um, perhaps a link you'd like me to share in your episode description when that comes out about some of the stuff that you're doing there um, sure. I think my listeners would like to read further uh, about that I wanted to talk about the inclusive footwear but time is against us I, I, if it's okay. okay with you I'd like to move on to the topic that a lot of my listeners really want to hear and, and talk about you've started talking about it earlier but let's continue with with this question I'm looking for tips from you for, for my listeners especially those that are budding entrepreneurs and those in the, the retail business, um, can you provide them with a few tips in obtaining the right investor and investment for their business, or just tips on the right approaches they need to take? Sure. Um, Farrell Robin is a self-funded company. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have any investors. Um, we are, you know, still true to ourselves that way. Um, How easy was with, it to do that? How easy was it, it to was, do that? You know, you know, I say this all the time, like the moments that seem the most crushing in any person's life and or career mm-hmm. can really be the most opportunistic. Um, what being a sole proprietor and not having partners or funding did for Farrell Robin, it, wa- it required that we go into a different direction in terms of our business model. Mm. So rather than being a brand, which was simply just too costly for us at a certain point in time, Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as cash flow and and growth ability, we became um, a trading company, a first class company. Mm-hmm. So we design and we produce, and we do not inventory a single piece of or a single product. Mm-hmm. And and we, which I love, actually it works for me because as as somebody in design, it's like by the time she's get onto a floor, I'm done and I'm moving on. But really, it mitigated our risk. We didn't have to pay for goods 60, 90, 120 days mm-hmm. prior to paying a factory. 
um, let's go back to the theory of kindness. Mm-hmm. I have had very long-standing, very loyal, very good partners overseas. Mm-hmm. So that when I need support, they are there. When they need support, I am there. We are honest with each other and supportive mm-hmm. of each other. And there is a loyalty beyond mm-hmm. um, you know, transactional business. Mm-hmm. And that is how we grew until we simply just got so large that we needed factoring to help us, which is basically like banking, uh, to support our business. And and we have been able to grow exponentially every year with this business model. And, and when you think about it, the companies that were absolutely hurt the most during COVID were companies that were financially invested in inventory mm-hmm. that could not be sold. And because we didn't hold on to this inventory, we were actually um, better positioned, I think. Mm, interesting. And you know, on your entrepreneurial journey, what have you learned or even unlearned during your life as an entrepreneur that would be a good takeaway for my listeners? You know, I, I think that um, the world changes so quickly. Um, and evolves so rapidly and to run business models um, sort of as if they become fact Mm -hmm. is very dangerous that we must always be amorphous and flexible and smart and creative and inspired and inspiring and and I have learned that and this is actually a really cool thing for me is that we I'm very proud of what we've done I'm very proud of the people I work with I think we have changed our industry and we strive to be industry changing I think we are smarter leaner Mm -hmm. faster more flexible anticipate changes in the world more quickly by doing things our way and not following the business model that that everybody has in place and follows well, and just... I, I will go back just to the question of, of, of financing and funding. A huge advantage that Farrell Robin has by being privately owned is that we are not um, sort of living by a P&L that investors Golden, yeah. um, are judging us by. So we can make very bold decisions with long-term goals Mm -hmm. that public companies or that organizations that are sort of slaves to their P&L and their investors cannot. Mm -hmm. And that has been usually advantageous to us and continues to be. Uh, Yes, I I can clearly see that. Um, Now some hot topics in the business. Um, Let's talk about innovations and the effect on retail and possibly your business. What are you seeing? If I present them, list them, it would be great if you could just talk briefly about your thoughts in this space and the developments you're seeing, albeit positive or negative. The first is the metaverse and augmented reality commerce. What are the developments here and what are your thoughts in this space? Oh my God, I love this space. Um, I don't think I Uh, I don't think we understand it to its fullest yet. And I think it is evolving so quickly um, that that it's going to take time for us to figure out the exact way to do it right. We currently work in VR. Mm -hmm. We design in VR. 
we have a VR showroom and it is like watching my son play computer games all day. It is so cool and so fun. And that's when I go back to um, the most inspiring time in the history of my career is to watch a 20 year old put on a pair of goggles, like put a pair of goggles on me and teach me how to redesign a shoe that's not there or to see three people in my company wearing goggles and moving their bodies and it is so nothing that I ever could have ever imagined you know 24 months ago mm. um, and I think it's incredibly important and I think retailers need to really understand opportunities of virtual walls and the ability to try product on virtually and and making life interactive because I think the future is interactive. It is indeed. And I'm, I'm flabbergasted by the speed in which this is moving. Um, not just the retail sector, across the globe, but I, I assume you must be seeing it quite fast in the retail sector. I don't see it quickly in the retail sector. And that's another, that is another um, example of, of the lack of speed that we have in in adapting a lot of things and a lot of it is because it's it's costly it's risky um it's changing a model that has been in place for a very long time and most large retailers really have to be very thoughtful about how they do it um but we can go into a meeting and put a pair of goggles on and show them what a virtual wall looks like and show them how to use qr codes to pop things up and i actually really think it is our responsibility to bring our retailers to where they should be because these are large companies and the financial implications are huge for them. Mm -hmm. And they should be thoughtful and careful about how they proceed, mm -hmm. but they must proceed. And I am more than happy to take on the burden of what should this look like for you, let's say Target, versus you, let's say Aldo, versus you, let's say anthropology free people or whomever it is, because it doesn't have to be the same and it shouldn't be the same mm -hmm. because frankly they have, you know, Gen Z consumes differently than a millennial, than a boomer. And we need to recognize that mm -hmm. and, and how to really focus on what type of technology or virtual world or, um, technology in and of itself that each retailer needs to invest to speak to their customer in the most powerful way. Okay, and the next one, um, what are your thoughts on the use of NFTs with e-commerce? I, I, love, I love the idea of NFTs. My issue with NFTs today is, um, I feel like to a certain extent, it is a privileged commodity. And my obsession with NFTs or my future thought process, my process with NFTs is how do we democratize NFTs so that consumers that may or may not have the same pocketbooks can join in on the party. So it's something that we're working on. Mm -hmm. But again, there is this, how do we empower um, consumers that or, or or people in and of themselves that the world just doesn't think about because they deserve to be honored and get in on this little party just like everybody else does but i think they're incredibly important um and they need to be um like sustainability democratized in a way 
so you're thinking on the inclusivity of the whole thing okay yeah i listen i think it's easy to go out there and and to a certain extent and to give um I'm going to use the words privilege, but I don't want to use it in a derogatory way. I just mm -hmm. think it's the reality of the world that we live in. People have bigger, you know, wallet sizes or, or um, are educated in a way that they can consume more quickly and, and, and um, productively. And I think we need to figure out a way to, to speak to the world. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the, the final one, unless you want to add on this one, um, web 3.0. You know, we, I, I don't even know what web 3.0 looks like today and what it's going to look like in 12 months and 18 mm -hmm. months. What I do know that, that we must focus on making everybody's life better. Mm -hmm. However we do it, whether it's through web 3.0, whether it's through giving consumers that don't have access to sustainability or comfort or shoes that fit them um, like the trans community or women with larger feet or women with wider feet, whatever it is, it is our responsibility to take care of the world. Mm -hmm. And whatever productive um, method we can use to communicate the most powerfully is the direction um, that we're gonna go down. Okay, okay. Um this final question um, on this episode of Heads Talk is asked to all the guests on the new retail series. So I'm going to start. What is the solution that you think has yet to be developed, but sits firmly within the retail world once available? I, I think the big change that retail is a little slow on is... Um, God, you're going to hate this answer because the way I communicate is probably so different from most of the CEOs and executives uh, that you speak with. But I think there is still a lack of diversity among the C-suite that is productively affecting the way we communicate and, um, and, and honor consumers. And that... Um, that different the lgbtq plus community has different things to focus on than um you know the female community versus and and the black community and and people with physical limitations and i think that unless we have multiple voices from marginalized and our community speaking together Mm -hmm. We are not doing the, re the the ultimate consumer justice, and and I want to be really clear about this because I've spoken about this before. I don't want to be known as a female CEO. I am a CEO. I am successful because I work really hard and surround myself with really smart people, and it has nothing to do. Well, I shouldn't say that it has nothing to do with, but I don't need to be, you don't recognize a male CEO as a CEO. You don't call him a, you know, dadpreneur. Um, but and, would, you, would you say that's particular to the retail industry? I think that, that we're making tremendous strides, but we are not there yet. And it's going to take a hot minute. Mm. 
Listen, I I am watching, you know, I am have become obsessed with upcycling resale, whether it's on the lux end or or um more mass pricing. This is a business model that didn't exist 24 months ago, where I am buying from, you know, Lux boutiques in London, mm-hmm. you know. And you know Chanel bags or or things that I don't have access to in my country for lower prices than what would be retail. And I got to tell you, if I was a retailer today, I'd be really scared of all these super creative business models that young hun- hungry entrepreneurs are thinking of that are going to change the way we consume. And I'm obsessed with it because I am fascinated by who's buying. I'm fascinated by what people are selling. I'm fascinated by the the technology that allows us to um, visually and verbally sell product to consumers around the world on a one-on-one screen with 500 people watching. And it didn't exist. Mm. And if retailers are not paying attention, if tradi- I'm going, I want to be really careful how I say that, if traditional retailers are not paying attention to these opportunistic um, ways of consuming product that is sprouting out around them, then they are not going to exist in a decade. And that's just the reality. Foul Robin Morse. Many thanks for your time and insights. Thank you so much. And again, I'm honored to be here. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepinkle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders and heads of multinational. Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.